Hello, welcome to another episode of I Love Rock and Roll. We're back. We're back. <laughs> I'm Ken Krantz. And I'm Chris Covert. <laughs> Covert, you're turning into like... You're turning into like the permanent guest. You're like the Joan Rivers. I'm your Joan Rivers to Johnny Carson. Of I Love Rock and Roll. Absolutely. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm really good. Things are good. Yeah. How are you? I'm all right. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Nobody ever asked me that on this. No, they don't. I have a present for you. You do? I do, because I'm on here more than Chip. Yeah. <laughs> so, I got, I made you this. What's this? Oh, it's you made me. Oh, you made me a, a pin of the I Love Rock and Roll logo with Chris Covert. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the dedication. I love it. I'm just, you know, edging my way in. Super. <laughs> I mean, sounds like you're edging me out. Yeah, I mean, kind of. <laughs> I've been talking to Chip a lot. Of, we were supposed to be on vacation together this week, but yeah. plans got messed up. Chip is uh, Chip's coming back. Chip, we'll, Chip, we'll see. <laughs> unless he goes like uh, he's on a cross country trip, so Ugh. yeah. And unless Is you've arranged for him, no, he's like uh, it's like a like a drive that he always wanted to do. I think unless, unless you're planning on like missing white ladying him. No, you know, you know what happens when people go for hikes. Yeah, it could happen. Oh, good <laughs> it never Lord. Works out. What's going on, Kahuna? Behind behind the boards, as always. What's Kahuna? going on, man? How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good, man. It's always a pleasure to be here. The pleasure is ours. Well, Chris, since yeah. it's uh, now your show, and yeah. um, you introduced me to our guest, why don't you why don't you introduce the guest for us? In the, in the studio today, Ken, I've brought you, I've, you know what, like, I'm more like Jack Hand, uh, Jack Handy, is that the guy that would always bring on a different animal on, on the Tonight Show? No, that the, was... The Irwin? Irwin? No, no, the older... Jack older, Hanna. Hanna. Jack Hanna. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more like him. I just bring in, you know, you never know what animal you're going to get. And today, I brought a hell of an animal. I saw him quite by accident one night, um... We'd stumbled into this place in Asbury, in Asbury Park, and uh, I am, a, I, you know, I play the piano. Yes. So when I hear a song, I pick, I can always pick out the piano first. I don't know if that works for, like, guitarists and stuff, but yeah. that's what I hear. That's what I focus on. And this beast behind the piano, I'm like, holy shit. And I was just jaw dropped. Couldn't get enough of it. And uh, now we're friends. I had him over my, to play my poker party that I do every year. And he, he uh, entertained everybody, and he's an amazing, amazing, amazing guy. Ryan Gregg, in here, right here. Very sweet. Thank you so much, hey, man. Chris. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. I did hear, I, you, I, so I, I was at the poker party yeah. after years of invites. Yeah. I finally. What the hell took you <laughs> so long? Well, I had to move closer. Because you, you used, you used now, to yeah. invite me, and it was like, it was like a 45-minute drive. Worth it. Yeah. Star-studded event. Yes. I mean, yeah, you on. had like the, the cast of uh, the cast of Clerks 3 was there. Yeah. Dude from Rushed. Bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> the dude from what? Rushed. The, I don't even. The Siobhan Hogan movie that just came out. Who? I don't even know who. Yeah, because you were stoned. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely was. Were you smoking with Kevin? No. All right. No, I didn't. Kevin Kevin Smith was inside playing poker, and uh, you. I, I don't know if you remember. 
I, um, I remember some of the night. Yeah. Thank God we took pictures. Yeah. Well, that's what you, you kept. You kept trying to get me and Ryan. You kept asking us if we wanted pictures with Kevin Smith, and it felt weird. Yeah, well, he was. Wa- I mean, he was walking by, and I think he was leaving. It was two in the morning by yeah. then. I mean, you got to pull the trigger, and you're just. You don't get up. Once you find your place, I don't think you got up once, did you? Did no, you I did. I, I moved around the backyard. Okay. You know what? It seemed like there was a whole thing going on inside. Yeah, we were and playing I'm poker. Not, yeah, poker well, I'm, I don't I don't play poker. Well, you should. So I didn't want to. Damn it, Ken, you should. I didn't want to uh, intrude. So I hung out, actually spent most of the night hanging out with Ryan talking music. You hang. didn't even get to hear him play. No, that so that's what, that's, how, that's what I started. So when I got there, everybody was talking about how good your performance was. And then as soon as we walked in, Kahuna recognized you from, from seeing, what, what's the name of your band? The Shady Street Show Band. Yeah, that's a cool name. I like it's that. It's cool. Man, they got, they got horns. They got sound you got a lot of horns last time i saw you i think you were playing with another band as well and there was more horns than usual uh the biggest I, horn show we did was we partnered with a big band we had 19 horns that night whoa oh, wow uh and then we do shows with one horn so it really depends on who's around that night. yeah <laughs> i mean but that's amazing because it's something you don't really say in the music is top notch yeah you. and he's got some pipes too Oh, yeah? My man can sing. Puts his heart and soul into it. Yeah. Why didn't you go that? Like, why did you... Because you you got, like, one foot in the comedy and one foot in the music. Well, I have a... That's my strategy for that. You know, once you tell a joke, the magic is gone. Yeah. But with music, people will listen to music over and over. So even if it's funny music... They'll still listen. If it's good music, they'll still yeah. listen to it. But it just feels think- like you're not succeeding. In two- <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not wow. succeeding in one in one area, you know? Oh, and it's Lord. like, I could kind of live with that. But it would keep me up at night to think like, oh, I'm failing at both. <laughs> wow. <laughs> is this because of the, the It is because of the fucking right, shirt right. with Chris Covert. It's funny. No, you know that. Uh, I love you. Know you. I'm I love you right back. Um, well, let's, I want to introduce today's topic. This is actually when you and I sat down and started talking about music, this was the first guy you asked me if I knew. Yeah. And, um, today we're talking about Dr. John. Hell yeah. Mac Rebenek. Yep. Yes. From New Orleans. Um, you told me, as we were talking, you told me Dr. John was your single biggest influence, your favorite artist. Yeah, probably the first piano player I really connected with. Yeah. Yeah, on an emotional and playing level, for sure. How old were you when you discovered him? Well, let me ask you this. How old are you now? 35, I believe. 35? Mm-hmm. I feel like that, because that's young to have an appreciation. Well, you said, I believe, so it could be 40. I, <laughs> <laughs> we don't know his whole story here. So, so my journey to Dr. John began when I was growing up. I had a music teacher. My first piano teacher was a friend of the family mm-hmm. who was a Northwestern-trained classical musician. Okay. No jazz bone in her body. But... She knew enough to put ragtime in front of me, 
which is the bridge between classical and jazz music. So ragtime, you know, I listen and I listen to the stuff I was playing. So when I was listening to ragtime, I had Scott Joplin playing in my headphones and I had Jelly Roll Morton playing in my headphones. And both of those guys are actually from Nolan's as well. Right. And then uh, that led to jazz and jazz led to blues. And when I found blues, I'd say I was around... 12 or 13 at that point. Yeah. I've like when it really hit me for the first time, uh, that was it for me. And uh, Dr. John was just one of the piano players from New Orleans I stumbled across and just fell in love with his style, with his attitude, with his playing, you know. And like, I remember being a kid and like all my friends are listening to pop punk music. Mm -hmm. And I really tried to get into it and I physically couldn't. And I, remember, <laughs> and I remember listening to these guys bitch and whine in song and like it's cheap because you're going after fucking kids and these kids like you know it's it's they're playing on emotions. But yeah. Like I listen to these blues guys and they'd be like, screw everybody, I'm here with my bottle of whiskey. And it's like these guys are way cooler. Yeah. And that's kind of and even at that age, even though I was very much alone in my uh, my love for that kind of music for a long time before I found other people to connect with on that stuff, I knew at that point that like this is something special that I need to hold on to. And it really created a really strong foundation for me, finding that music early on. Yeah. And you grew up in Jersey? Yep. Uh, Matawan, or yeah. Aberdeen, yeah. Yeah. Probably not a lot of kids in your school. No. Listening to Dr. John. I'd say zero. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I remember like, oh, what kind of music you listen to? And I'd say like jazz and blues. And I'd get the response to be usually like, oh, that's cute. You know, like yeah. that, that nobody knew what to do with me. And, and even to a certain extent, like when I would go to like some of the jazz ensemble stuff they do for kids when you're young, like they have all these programs and whatnot. I was always an outsider because I wasn't a jazz player. I was a rhythm and blues guy. Yeah. And like, so there's even less of those kinds of, because with jazz, there's like the attachment to academia and all that other crap. But like for someone like me, it really wasn't, uh, it, it really wasn't, uh, I, I got a lot of, I, I didn't, connect with anybody else because yeah. nobody was listening to that music. And if I did find anybody who listened to anything remotely like that, uh, it was not until I even got to college before I started finding those other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, when how, me and you were roughly the same. Age. I remember growing up like second, third grade. It was all Michael Jackson. Oh uh, yeah. And like and I remember, Springsteen. and Michael Jackson and I'm Bon so Jovi <laughs> and Springsteen. <clears throat> bon Jovi was like I was in sixth grade. Yeah, Slippery yeah, Hole yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, probably. But I remember Michael Jackson. Grade. Like you, you didn't get any bigger than that. And no, I, that I, was, I was listening to. It was all British Invasion for me when I was like eleven or twelve. I I grew up with the Beatles. My yeah. mom was a huge Beatle freak so and she had a bunch of tapes that were like not really like studio tapes and i don't know how she got all this stuff but uh she had a bunch of bloopers and weird like weird stuff i always thought that was cool like outtakes and shit outtakes and mess ups in the studio that they saved and 
Yeah, it's weird. Uh, but they did everything on four tracks. Amazing. Yeah. I always love that when you look back on the technology of the past and you realize how much they were able to accomplish on just Unreal. four tracks of audio. Especially uh, when I listen to like stuff like the Beach Boys and the breakdown, how oh, they do like good vibrations. Yeah. I love that type of stuff. I thought the yeah. coolest part of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was showing them in the in the studio, like swinging the amplifier by the microphone and all the different creative ways they had to make the sounds. Okay, go ahead. What? You think about... <laughs> <laughs> you think about... I, I like to think of it like a playground effect, you know, where sometimes if you're putting up the parameters and you got guys you can throw down, the parameters actually help you know, even if, even if it, those parameters on the outset look restrictive, there's when you only have so much to work with, you have to get creative. It's yep. like a kid who has a cardboard box when they're a kid and like, this is your toy. Good yeah. luck. You know, yeah. in the same way, when musicians are hamstringed by the equipment they're using and you're not working in a hundred thousand dollar million dollar studio, you got to make do. And, like, that's why, like, when you make a mix, you know, one of the f places you have to listen to is in your car. It has to sound good in your car speakers. Find the shittiest car, yeah. your 1984 Volvo, and throw on your CD. And if it sounds good, you know you made a good record. Because, yeah. like, that's the shittiest equipment you could find. And it's important to never get too far away from that because there's lots of kids who come out of school – you know, music school almost made me quit music. But there's lots of kids who come out of music school who are trained on the best equipment under the best circumstances in the perfect quiet room. They get thrown to the wolves and it's like, okay, you're working a studio with a leaky ceiling somewhere in the back of a city and you got to make a good sound come out of a guitar player who's drunk from the night before and his amp's got beer spill on it. And it's like, <laughs> how do you get a good sound out of that? But a really good engineer will know how to do that because they're used to working with nothing. So, um, I, so I learned some shit about Dr. John that I, first off, I want to say this, that this is one of those rare cases where a dude seemed because he only had one top 40 hit in his uh, right place at the wrong time. So do I? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, which is probably the only song a lot of people have have ever heard by him. Which is amazing, considering thirty albums and yeah, thirty studio albums and nine live albums. Yes. Well, a lot of people younger than me now know him. Because oh, yeah. Of, this is a good point because this is how I picked up on Doctor John was when I was a kid. He his voice popped up in a lot of movies yep. growing up of mine. So like. One of my favorite movies as a kid was 101 Dalmatians, the re like the the animated one and the remake. And then the remake, he did a cover of Cruella DeVille. And I remember latching onto that as a kid, like, I've never heard a voice like that. Yeah. And then my mom and dad were like, that's Dr. John. And then they introduced me to that. And then he periodically just kept appearing in other things, culminating to the point where he wrote or performed one of the main songs in a Disney movie. So I think that's why... Even though it's a small demographic, yep. some kids now know who Yeah, he is. no, 90s yeah. kids, he did like all of the music for the Curious George cartoon. Yes. I would watch that with uh, my daughter, you know, when, when she was young enough for that. And it would be like the only thing that can get you through some of that shit. You would be like. <laughs> <laughs> but like part of me has to think that how cool that decision is, because then even though. Unfortunately, my generation kind of skipped out on that greatness. Now the next gen can can look at that and appreciate the work, whereas 
I wish we had more people that had that thought process with more legends like that. Yes, children's media has a stigma to it, but like when you see someone cool attached to it, you're like, yeah. oh, this is this is awesome. Yeah. yeah. So it it's a cool legacy thing. So I'm glad at least Dr. John got to experience he, that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because this feels like an artist that should have been underappreciated, but he did seem to get the respect and appreciation that he deserved. I mean, not the commercial success, but musicians loved him. He was uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I wouldn't have get. I wouldn't have guessed that they would get that call right. There was, there's a difference between an artist and a gun. Most artists aren't guns, and most guns aren't artists. But every once in a while, you get a guy who's both. And Dr. John is one of those cases where, on the front end, he is the crazy performance-driven character that he cultivated, that whole thing that is, you know, I hate to even use this fucking word in terms of someone this cool, but, like, his brand. Yeah. You know, it's very... He is an entity in and of himself, but there's also that back end. You know, he was working, he moved out to L.A. from New Orleans, and then he became part of the Wrecking Crew out in California. He was? Yes. He was part of, and and the Wrecking Crew is is bigger as a concept than even most people realize because he's a gun. You know, if Jagger came to town, he did piano on something, if any major artist would come to town, they knew they could call him and he could come in and he could kill it. And he wouldn't, and and the role of the gun is different because it's not about you. It's about the song. It's about serving the song. It's about serving the song. And, you know, someone like him who grew up in New Orleans with that deep appreciation of history and music and like breathed it and learned from these greats would have that sensibility. And, you know, uh, a lot of the guns in the business are people that are done very well financially that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. Because they're happy working just as musicians. They don't need, you know, the, the, the recognition from the outside never reached the pinnacle of, of who he was, but at the same time, he was incredibly well respected yes. amongst other musicians. Yeah. 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 Um, it's like when we say a comics comic. Right. Yeah. yeah but, he, you know, he, he, yeah. I'm mean, comics comic usually means. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. He's a musician's musician. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was surprised to find out that uh, there was after. So he passed away in 2020. Was, mm-hmm. it, was it COVID? Uh, I don't think so. I think he's just. He was he just. Had, a, he was. He, he had a heart attack. Yeah. Oh, he was, well, yeah. He didn't look like he was in good health for. Quite some time. <laughs> he did a lot of drugs back in the day. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, he lived a rough life. Yeah. This is what I was surprised to find out, though, because um, I read uh, after he passed away, Rolling Stone did a long article on him. And I was rereading the article last night, and I had no idea. This dude started out as a guitar player. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, he was a guitar player, like very dapper. Like you'd see the old pictures of him, like clean, clean shaven, like shoes. the quaff. Yeah. Like yeah. the shiny suits. And um, he said that because New Orleans was so famous for drummers and piano players, 
and they, for some reason, didn't have a lot of famous guitar players that he wanted to be the first famous guitar player coming out of New Orleans. And this must have been back, I'm, I'm guessing, like the 50s, right? Yeah, probably, Late yeah. 50s. Yeah. And um, he was, he had a little bit of a heroin habit. And um, during uh, a drug transaction, there was like a drug transaction that went wrong and he got... Somebody pulled a gun on his friend. He tried to push the gun away, and he got a bit of his finger blown off. And happens. Yeah, happens to the best of us. <laughs> and happened to me last week. <laughs> and uh, it made it so that he couldn't play guitar anymore. He tried switching to bass, but then settled on piano, which. As a pianist, I believe you still need ten fingers, but whatever, he did fine. That did seem to me like <laughs> that did seem to he me like fast enough. They yeah. might miss it, but but I think it's know. a pressure thing. I think for the guitar, if I had to guess, I'm not a guitar player. I can, yeah, uh, but. When you use your hand and you press the finger on the string, like it's that pressure point. If you're mm -hmm. just kind of hitting the piano, you know, you can kind of hit it at a different angle. It's a different feel. It doesn't have to be that same kind of, that would definitely screw you up. It was his left hand. Maybe it wasn't long enough to reach that. List. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? You yeah. know? I was actually, looking, I was, it. I was looking to see if I could spot it. Cause I, I guess he must've, yeah. I, mean, I was even, I was just, I went on the YouTube and cool. I was, I've just been watching live performance of his and um, I kept looking to see if I could spot it but I couldn't that would so be he, funny if he just kept with guitar and <laughs> well, you know, right, this one's in the key of G again <laughs> <laughs> sorry guys I can't play enough sharp <laughs> that's one of my favorite stories in rock and roll is Tommy Iommi because he got his both his fingers chopped off and that's the reason the power chord exists he created the power chord because he lost his fingers in a metalworking accident. And he's like, all right, I'm still going to play guitar. I'll figure this out. And oh, shit. that's why the three, the three note power chord came into existence. It was out of necessity. That's so. a true art. Like if I lost two <laughs> fingers in a metalworking accident, I would have hung myself that night. I would have been like, what the fuck am I sticking around for? It would truly become I Love Rock and Roll with Chris Covert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you're going to have that Def Leppard drummer on here. Um, actually, uh, it's looking like November. Oh, nice. Yes. Um, Is he going to be right, on? Just... <laughs> yep. Nice. Um, Overcoming adversity. Yes. Well, Love so it. I was, so back to, so... He had this whole different persona where he was, you know, like we said, clean shaven, you know, well dressed. And he's trying to he's he's making money. He's doing well as a studio musician, but he wants to make his own music. And um, from what I was reading, he. In order to like come up with a hook to sell albums, he kind of invented this Dr. John persona. And the, the Dr. John persona was, um, it was more like New Orleans, uh, like Indian chief. Yeah, the voodoo stuff. Yeah, like, he, stuff. like, like, the, like a voodoo <clears throat> character. In fact, I was reading that um, he wasn't even going to play the character, that he had another Someone yeah. else in the band was was going to be Dr. John. 
and and do the do the voodoo shit. And it was going to be for live performances. But then that guy backed out. So Dr. John was like, all right, fuck it. I'll do it. Yeah. And um, that's how he was able to sell his first album, which Chris uh, Chris. Gregory. Yeah, Gregory. Gregory. <laughs> I have family from New Orleans who, if they're going to hear this, they're going to fucking rip on me. Gregory, which is, um, which like is an- a pretty uncompromising look at New Orleans uh, voodoo style music. Yeah. He, I mean, he studied under Professor Longhair. Right. Who was like a legend of legends. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a contemporary of lots of incredible players down there, constantly, you know, breathing the music while he's there and that culture, you know, and I, I'm sure. I'm sure it began as a myth and he kind of grew into that myth, yeah. you know, and like it, it was supposed to be a one off. He was going to do it for this one album. And then, you know, he, he just wanted to get a record deal. Yeah. And, you know, and um, the album, I, I think, while not super commercially successful, critically, it's held as a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Even at the time. Yeah. And uh, he gains a lot of fans in the industry off the strength of that album. So then I guess his thought process was like, oh, fuck it. You know, I guess I'll keep it going for a little bit. Yeah. It's a chicken and the egg thing, too. You know, a lot of those guys. I mean, Hendrix was the same way. You look at early Hendrix. He's clean cut, clean shaven in the dapper suits because that was that's how you made if you were a working musician and you were a session guy, that's how you made money. You made money as a backing guy in the doo-wop bands, in the bands like that. And, like, when you show up to those gigs, you know, it's not about your personality. It's about the ensemble. It's about the band. It's about you fading into the background and the front person. And it's a very formulaic – it's an incredible formula. I mean, Motown is Motown. Right, right. But – yeah, it's a formula because it works. Uh, it's a formula because it works. But like you know, there was uh, I saw the recently the documentary "The Summer of Soul." Yeah, and they were good. It was amazing. They were talking about Sly and the Family Stone, and it was and there was a guy there who was like a fan who said the first time that he saw Sly was the first time that he realized that he didn't have to be the guy in the suit anymore. You know, that he was one of those guys. He's a back, all yeah. his, him and all his buddies would all, anytime they play a gig, they dress up in the suits. It was all, you know, straightened hair. And the first time they saw Sly and that, you know, think about like the first time you see George Clinton. Yeah. You know, the first time you see they're like, oh, there's another way to do this. I don't just have to be this cookie cutter person. So it's like, you could make the argument that like, you know, Mac Rebenak kind of created this character, but I'm sure there was a huge part of that character that was already him. Yeah. It's just that he suppressed that during that time when he was in those suits because he didn't need to work. Yeah. You know? Yes. And then I guess people, there was confusion. Was was he really into voodoo? Was he really into some dark <laughs> shit? But I think admittedly, you know, even self-admittedly, he said he wasn't. It's a gimmick. Yeah. You know, it's it's shtick. It's, yeah. it's high shtick. It's I. <laughs> It's why I love, you know, the parallels between comedy and music are endless, but like it's shtick, you know? (laughs) I mean, his his roots were real, but his thing, I mean, he could bring New Orleans anywhere. 
Yes. Yeah. And this was back when you couldn't hop on your phone and say, what's New Orleans like? Right. You know, he yeah, was bringing it to you, the whole state, like everything, the costumes, every, you know. Yes. They had some voodoo ritual type things. Yeah, they, they had so early <clears throat> on for that for that first tour for that album, he had they were doing... Uh, they were practicing voodoo on stage with uh, a guy that would bite the heads off live chickens. Ozzy was there. (laughs) (laughs) Ozzy's there at one of the first shows writing down notes. (laughs) He did what to the chicken? Yeah, that's got to be a tough sell, too. Like, hey, you want to be in my band? Like, fuck yeah. (laughs) Fuck yeah, I want to be in a band. What what am I playing? (laughs) You're going to play the the chicken neck snapper. Yeah. I just need a guy to bite the head off a live chicken. <laughs> sure, I <laughs> maybe grab a tambourine. <laughs> um, but I, I think that he he did away with some of the uh, some of that shit pretty quickly. It sounded like that didn't last long. He he sort of settled it after a few albums. He just sort of settled into. Being more himself, just under the the Doctor John moniker, and you know the price of chickens. Yeah, <laughs> these days, yeah, after nice. COVID, he wouldn't be for sure wouldn't be doing it. It's like fucking six dollars for a chicken wing now. Um, but it's it's a hugely influential album. It's even today, like on Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums ever, it's like 140 something. It's it's up there. Um, and uh, yeah, but like we said, like it, it won the respect of of a lot of different musicians. I actually watched. He he sort of was like the ultimate special guest or, or drop in. Yeah, oh, he played on thousands of albums yeah like as a yeah well i i watched um if you go on youtube somebody put up every one of his appearances on david letterman i saw that yeah Yeah, so i I actually watched it this morning Uh thinking that maybe some of it because he was a very funny yeah he was yeah like he just had this this huge personality and um so I watched it thinking that there would be some back and forth with him and Dave, but it was just nothing but his musical performances. And most of them were him, like, and Dr. John on piano. You know, it was like with somebody else. Uh, the first one was him and Bonnie Raitt and Edda yeah. James. Um, and then there was another one. Like, this is how varied it was. There was another one with uh, G-Love in the 90s, who's actually going to be my guest on Sunday. Nice. Coming cool. up in a few days. Um, he did a Christmas song with Christina Aguilera. Like, that's how, but that's also how far-reaching his influence his influence and, and the respect for him was. And then, then, there, then he's up there with B.B. Um, King on uh, one of his songs. B.B. King did, oh shit, I'm going to forget. It was a tribute album to Louis Jordan. And they did uh, Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby, mm, which I only know that from Tom and Jerry. Uh, Tom and Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every Let the time, good times roll. Yeah. Every time I hear that song, I'm like... 
Tom and Jerry. Yep. 100%. Like BB King. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely the That's same. That's why that new Tom and Jerry movie was shit. Didn't have that song. Yeah. <laughs> um And then so I think then he realized like, oh, maybe I need to cash in on this and then the next several albums were were in the same like voodoo vein. Uh, up until I think it was like his fourth or fifth album. This is the one I've been listening to a lot to get ready for this was um, uh, Dr. John's Gumbo, which was just a collection of New Orleans standards, um, which I have a feeling like Ico Ico's on there, Junko Partners on mm-hmm. there, and I have a feeling like that became that introduction for those songs for other artists who made them more famous. Like the dead started doing I go, I go. Yeah. They had to have gotten that. You would think. Yeah. I mean, there are standards that exist in that music that people just like, nobody even remembers where they came from. Right. You know? And like, there and the deeper you go into that world, the more like and New Orleans is that is mecca for music in this country. Everything came from that city. All jazz in every city yeah. started there. So like some of those songs are as old as dirt and uh, just get passed down orally and are regionally big. But like there are there are cats in New Orleans who have lived their whole life in town, played their whole life in town, have no desire to ever leave town. Yeah. And just play their music and play to their people and have their thing and are content. You know, so it and they make a good living too. They make a good living. And 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 it's also, you know, you think about that city too, it's kinda isolated where it is, you know, whereas like if you're here, New York is an hour away, Boston's four hours, like it's much more insular and so a lot a lot less music was able to get out into the wider world. So when it had an opportunity, like someone like Dr. John, to take that music to a wider audience, it was like people had never heard this stuff before. It was like, what is this? Yeah. You know, it was really, it's pretty cool he was able to do that. Yes, and he did it, uh, like, so humbly. Like, um, he... He it didn't. It, it, I read a bunch of interviews with him. It didn't seem like he was trying to take credit for it. Like he just kept saying, I, "I'm doing it exactly mm-hmm. th- the way I heard it." You know, I'm I'm not. Uh, it, I'm doing. This is just Professor Longhair. This is just my spin on. Per- he, yeah. he always name checked Professor Longhair. They had the best nicknames. They all they had did. cool nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading, I don't remember all of them, but some of the names that he played with. That's what we need more these days. Right, Kahuna? <laughs> <laughs> you have a nickname? Not yet. Because you have two first names. I do have three, actually. Ryan, Alexander, Greg. So. <laughs> oh, that's I thought maybe yeah. that was like, uh, I, I didn't think Greg was your real last name. I thought it was well, like that thing where you just take your middle name and... It used to be Goldberg, but uh, the family changed it in the 60s yeah. uh, because Goldberg just was no attachment to the name. So they just picked Greg, and it's been that way ever since. Ryan but Alec. all Jewish, no Irish. So. Rag. So he, it's rag time. He's rag time. Rag time, yeah. And it makes sense. He plays oh. all So wait, so in the 60s, that's like, 
was pretty recently. Yeah. Grandpa changed the name. Him and his brother got together. And, like, we uh, don't want to be known as Jews. Uh, I think, well, you know, Ellis Island, the reason why all the Jewish names sound the same is because what's your name? Okay, you're Goldberg. Yeah. You know, so like it wasn't, he didn't have that same kind of connection to that name in that way. And also, I don't know believe there was another dentist in Detroit at the time whose name was also Goldberg who got in trouble with the mob during that time. Oh, yeah. It'd be real and then, quick to change. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that was the, I don't think that might, I don't think that was it, but I think that was the last straw where my grandpa was like, all right, we're done with this. Like, I, want, I don't even want like this name, so we're not doing this. So that was when they changed it. It's covert. You're real. Yeah. Yeah. You're not like a secret Jew. No. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding? If I was a Jew, I'd be riding this shit. And I'd be fucking on Netflix already. <laughs> Are you out of your mind? I don't you know. You know how hard it is to be me? <laughs> that white guy with a kid? Divorced? Everybody. I'm everybody. Yeah. I'm all of them. Yeah. Yeah, they're not handing out specials to no. us. No. Um, You come from a musical family? My grandma was an opera singer, although not professionally, uh, or she was when she was younger, but uh, my, neither of my parents are professional musicians, and there aren't really any professional musicians in the family. Uh, I just found it. I gravitated towards it. And nice. It was, it, it, was, uh, it was incredible. I was bullied a lot as a kid, and it was my blanket, you know, yeah. so to speak. You know, it, it saved me from a lot. And it created a sense of identity early on that like, all right, I know who I am. I'm a musician. You know, I'm a piano player. And, and I wore that as, uh, as protection against a lot of that crap that otherwise, uh, you know, I would have had to deal with. You know, it protected me. So I owe a lot to music in that respect, too. But uh, I was very much alone in my love for music as far as the way I interacted with it and the way it made me feel and the way the kind of music I listened to really until, uh, until college is when I really started making true connections with other musicians. That yeah. Like, okay, cool. You're into this kind of stuff too. And like, you want to do this, like do this, do this. So, but you knew early on, I knew yeah. early on. So, uh, Dr. John knew at like 13. I think he got his first, <laughs> I never wrote it down. 13 or 14. He got hired at a, at a record well it might be label. either or because i think the legend 14. is that he also lied about the year he was born to to get into gigs because oh. no one would take him seriously as a 13 year old but as a 14 year old they're yeah. like okay fine he was yeah. born in 41 so in um uh at 14 i guess he he signed on with aladdin records as a songwriter and then at 16 he signed on as a producer at ace records yeah, well, they said that his dad used to re repair or sell sound systems. Yeah. And he would take him to the different clubs and venues and bars. He would, like, go on his roots with him while he took care of the sound system. And that, uh, he, that, that yeah, that's, that's where he heard the music and saw the bands. And uh, I guess that's what gave him... Gave him the bug for it. The whole family played piano, it looks like. 
or some kind of mostly piano his whole family Brian, in regards to your family, like, what was the type of music your parents were listening to around the house? Like, did it have anything to do with what you... James Taylor and derivatives of James Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) You said that with, like, fuck. I mean... (laughs) You said the Vietnam flashbacks in your eyes. There was a lot... Of adult contemporary music, yeah. I I have come to respect that music, and I have nothing against James Taylor. I think he's a brilliant artist, but uh, it definitely wasn't the stuff that I was playing or listening to. Yeah. It was what you have a re- yeah, as you said, yeah. you have a respect for it, but because you listen to it so many times, it's like, all right, I like it, I understand it, respect it, never yeah. gonna listen to it again. It was on repeat on, in my childhood. It was that. Kind of easy listening, acoustic guitarish, yeah, rockish, adult contemporary music. You know, J- James Taylor, and and it's really funny. Like I started getting into kids' music in the last a uh, little while ago, and I started like really studying that business and seeing how uh, it's a twenty-year gap because the lyrics are for the kids and the production is for the parents. So in the '90s, when Raffi was huge. 20 years before then is when James Taylor was hitting. So it's like Raffi was James Taylor for kids, you know? And then 10 years later, the Doodle Bop show up and they're pulling from the 80s music. And then 10 years later, Yo Gabba Gabba shows yeah. up and they're pulling from the 90s. Right. And it's like, it's that gap. It's that cycle. Yeah, it's that cycle. But like between Raffi and James Taylor, I've. I'm happy with the blues. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing, a kid's blues record? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was. I, I'm actually working on a children's stick figure puppet show, but that's neither here nor there. But it's, uh, yeah. When I was growing up, it was all James Taylor. It was a lot of Raffy, a lot of that kind of stuff. But like also, you know, cartoon music, like Sesame Streetish stuff, mm-hmm. which like kind of has. You know, which kind of led me into the vaudeville-ish stuff, which is you could kind of draw a connection to what Dr. John was yeah, doing. Yeah, well, it's funny yeah. you say that because Dr. Teeth, the, the band leader on The exactly, Muppet Show, yeah. is, is modeled after Dr. John. 110%. Yeah. yeah. Even sounds like him to an yes. extent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was a direct... And Animals tailored is uh, inspired by Keith Moon. Yeah, I'm not surprised with that. <laughs> Yeah. Which is, they were also my two, they, it was a tie between them and the uh, cranky old guys in the balcony. That's like that, that hit, yeah, that hit everything yeah. that that I was. I was like, I loved music, but I, I also think assholes are funny. <laughs> <laughs> Statler, Waldorf, and Bugs Bunny were the first things that gave me indications. It was like, yeah. I think I have an appreciation for assholes. <laughs> I think I might be an asshole. What, what is that? Sarcasm? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I met... Found my flavor. So when I met Dr. John, it was like probably five or ten years ago, I was doing a festival down south of Miami, or I'm sorry, in North Florida at a place called Suwanee Music Park, which is just heaven on earth. But I was there with a different band. I'm sitting backstage at Dr. John, and the guy's like 10 feet from me on stage, and I'm losing my mind, you know, because I'm just, it's incredible. You, you yeah. can't help but feel. Yeah, you, you can't help. The, this guy, O'Teal Burbridge, who's the bass player for The Dead, and he's the bass player for Tedeschi Trucks, and all these giant acts, like, walks up next to me. 
backstage and he's like geeking out harder than I am watching Dr. John. Yeah. That's the kind of whatever. So uh and I don't usually I don't usually freak out and but like this guy's responsible for me. So I had to say something. I couldn't let this moment pass. And he's walking by me and I say, uh, you know, Mac or whatever I said at the time, like, thank you so much for what you do. I really appreciate you. I really appreciate the music. Like, like really, uh, you're one of the reasons I play the piano. I just want to let you know that. And there's a pause. And he goes, there's a lot of other guys you could listen to. Have a nice day. <laughs> and, and then he starts walking away. And, like, I'm... I'm totally content. You know, I can walk away. That was great. And the woman he's with is goes, Mac, that kid poured his fucking heart to you. You go over there. You take a fucking picture with that kid right now. Like, all right, all right, all right. Like, <laughs> was that great. was most likely his manager. Yeah, it was being like that was mean. It was oh, great. Man. No, I think it was. He was there with his whole family. It could have been like a cousin or an aunt or somebody. Right. But like some. It was just. Because at that point, like, he was traveling, like, anytime he played a gig, like, that place was, every, there was, like, 10 to 15 people that were his kids, his grandkids, his whatever, but uh, it was, yeah, it was it was a very on-brand for Dr. John. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great, too, though, like, as a musician, when you can, because it's hard, like, I know for comics, it's hard, it's hard to watch comic objectively com comedy objectively like it's hard to watch as a fan it's hard to sit uh, back that was the worst for me just stopping watching it yeah because i didn't want to you know those moments are like did i write that yeah did somebody did i hear this somewhere yeah so i just stopped watching comedy it's yes yeah i sort of did the same thing because I, I i was obsessed with comedy before i got into it yeah and now I, I watch almost none of it, but sometimes I, I, I won't watch it on TV unless it's somebody that I'm a huge fan of or a friend where yeah. you're like, I want to watch their special. But um, every now and then you see somebody that's so good that brings you so much joy that you can turn off that part of your brain where you're analyzing everything and trying to find the tricks and yeah you know see how they're doing it and Actually it just turns yeah it just it. turns you into it just enjoy it and yeah. turns you into a fan and you're just laughing again yeah um so i i got to imagine it's sort of the same yeah i mean there's there's very few bands that you know if, if i'm at a show i'm outside drinking i'm schmoozing i'm hanging i'm going out for a smoke whatever it is like maybe if i'm at a show i'll spend 50 50 if it's a bit not even a great band i'll spend 80 percent outside or yeah. whatever there are very very few bands that have me for the entire show you know uh, recently uh i put gogo bordello on that list mm -hmm. They're incredible because the show is so good. Uh, Tedeschi Trucks, I put on that list, but like that's a direct line from. You could trace that back to Dr. John, like the, all that kind of music, that ensemble, yeah, the big production kind of stuff on stage, where, you know, from a musical perspective, the, you know, you say you look for the tricks, and like I've always kind of thought of the metaphor of just like. Musicians are like magicians. So when you watch another musician on stage, you know, generally you're looking for, I'm not interested. 
I'm not interested in seeing him pull a rabbit out of the hat. I want to know how long that rabbit was in the hat. You know, I, I want to know all those idiosyncrasies. And usually when you see someone and you're really impressed, nine times out of 10, it's because of the time they had to put in to get that result, mm-hmm. you know? And if you know, if you're looking at a professional who just, it's smooth sailing, you know, it's really, uh, it's really impressive to see that kind of stuff. And sometimes it's real magic, you know, but like it's much fewer and farther between. Usually it's a work ethic thing. It's a work thing that I'm seeing. I'm like, holy crap. Like that guy just pulled a double, triple landing and yada on the piano. But in the same way, I'm sure it is in comedy. You know, you see sometimes something that will drive the audience crazy and you're just like, I know what he did. I know that trick, you know, like, and it's usually (laughs) for us, it's usually like, why the fuck didn't I write that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I hate that. Why didn't I think of humping the stool? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Get in the game. (laughs) Um, were you able to, uh, Oh, let me ask you this. So what are, because he's just so famous for like, the, the drop-ins, the guest appearances. Mm-hmm. I thought he was the best part of um, the last Waltz mm-hmm. famous documentary, you know, the, the, the last concert the band ever did. Um, I thought he stole the show in that film. Um, what are, what are your, what are some of your favorite performances that he's done? Yeah. Like with other like where they trot him out, like oh, and here's Doctor John. Uh, I mean, I love the stuff he did with the band. Mm-hmm. I honestly mostly, it was about him being a solo artist for me. Yeah, even in that respect, you know, I I came to him through him. It wasn't through seeing him as a guest. It was seeing him as himself. And and my my favorite piece he's ever written is a solo arrangement of a spiritual tune called uh, Closer Walk With Thee, Mm -hmm. which is just him on the piano playing hyper-traditionally and doing this piece that's just, it's, and for most of the song, he's not even singing. And it's just all that emotion through him playing. Like, that's the stuff that really impressed me with him. You know, it was that personality because, uh, yeah, you at the end of the day, if he was with someone else, he was always in service of that song, yeah. in service of that act, which is great. That's what they're, they're doing. His personality was injected into it, but it really, it, it, him in his purest form was him without a band and just him at the piano. You yeah. know, that really was, for me, like where I fell in love with him was in that respect. Do you remember the album that did it for? Was it a song? Was it an album? It was that song. It was Closer Walk With Thee. It yeah. was very specifically that song. And uh, I've heard it a couple times over the years done different ways by him. But like it was, I actually, when I was a kid, I uh, I used to, uh, and probably how I probably found him, is that compilation CDs were always cheaper than actual albums, yeah. especially for blues and jazz. So, like, I'd walk into a store as a kid, 10 years old, with 10 bucks and walk out with 10 compilation CDs because nobody cared, you know? Like, yeah. nobody was going in buying jazz records, so I could get away with this giant collections of music. So I really, my... And it's it's interesting because it's gotten me... Because I know some musicians I know who are, like, so album-driven... Yeah. 
I'm more performance driven, you know, in, in that I don't necessarily have those same kind of stats in my head because I came to a lot of these guys, you know, I could sing you the solo they did, but I can't tell you what album it was from, yeah. you know? <laughs> That's interesting. Have you started since? Use your words, Ken. Have you started? <laughs> <laughs> Have you? Do you listen? Are you a fan of Doctor John? Yeah, yeah. I listen to all that. You know, Uncle Sonny got me turned on to a bunch of George. Joe Wright from uh, Doctor Hook and the Medicine Show. Yeah, yeah. There's he had a different some medicine show. He had some great. He had a he had Dr. some good John story. Yeah, he said that he used to steal his weed because. Yeah. <laughs> He said Dr. John always had much better weed than him. And yeah. then finally, Dr. John the, one um, day. Babette's uncle. Huh. Yeah, yeah. He said Dr. John one day was like, why are you always smoking my weed? Why aren't I smoking yours? He was like, you can smoke mine, but it's shittier weed. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Yeah, I have a big appreciation for pretty much everything. Yeah. Musically. You know what else he did that... Um, Except James Taylor. <laughs> I don't know. It's a mini piano thing. I don't know. No. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, actually, somebody just invited me to see uh, James Taylor. And uh, oh, who was he with? It was my, my wife went with, uh, with her dad to see James Taylor and... Um, Anne Murray? No, who's the dude that used to beat up Daryl Hannah? Uh, Jackson Brown. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have never had a harder pass for a concert. Yeah. And Didn't like as fast as possible. Yeah. I was like, I'm definitely not. Yeah, because you can't just skip to the end, do that song I like, and yeah. then leave. You can't. I don't even know what song I would come up with that. Um, I mean, well, Fire and Rain for James Taylor, I guess. I don't yeah. know if that's his closer. That's a little downbeat for a closer. But. He's a great, I mean, he's a really good songwriter. And like, you can take a James Taylor song and put it in a Dr. John style, yeah. you know, because of the strength of his writing. You know, yeah. his delivery is his delivery, but like his writing at the end of the day, you strip away everything. You know, you can really, there's some good meat and potatoes on that stuff, but yeah, it's the, it's the vibe of that stuff for sure. It can definitely get to you, but very inoffensive, you know, concerts. I saw, God, I saw this one guy, George Winston is a piano player, mm -hmm. a jazz guy. At the Basie, it was like a Kenny G audience. <laughs> and uh, he played like the most just rambling kind of pretentious shit just over like 15, 20 minutes of like he'd, he'd lull and he'd like he'd pick back up and he'd lull and like think the song would be over, it wouldn't be. Just like for like, 20 minutes and he'd be done. It's like, all right, thank you. It's great. It's like that was my composition, Moon. And now my composition stars, and it's like, God damn it! That's how I felt the first time. The first fish got very big when I was in high school, like my junior year, and all of my friends, they'd I'd already rejected the Grateful Dead. All my friends were huge Deadheads, but. Um, 
jam bands to just never did it for me. I got, I was just more like my wheelhouse is garage rock and, uh, or blues, soul, hip hop. Like I just, once you start noodling away at a song for 20 minutes, I just, I don't have the attention span for it. I don't know if it's the weed or it's just the way I'm wired. I just, I don't have the attention span. I, I hear you. And my friends started telling me about this new band, Fish, that you had to come see. And I was like, <sighs> all right, you know, like I'm up for any concert. And I went with, I went with my girlfriend at the time and we sat through Fish and it was the same thing. It was like, oh, I, I think this song's almost over. Yeah. And then it was like, oh no, you're not even at the halfway point. <laughs> And they would and they would lull you into thinking something new was coming, and yeah. it never did. Yeah. And um, but everybody around me was going wild. That's so funny, just how subjective music is. Because people around us were losing our minds, and uh, me and my girlfriend kept looking at each other like, well, "Do you get it?" I was like, "Maybe I don't get it." And then afterwards, my friends, I was like, "They were like, what'd you think? Were you blown away?" I was like, "Well, no, not." Not really. But that's amazing, though. You had a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, they convinced, they were like, well, it, it wasn't their best show. They were a little off. You got to come back. You got to. And then they got me. They, I fell for it again. <laughs> <laughs> and then. Um, Try it with mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then I, I, I probably did. And I was like, no, nah, it's just why are they jumping on trampoline? Like, I just don't get it. Yeah. And then it was, but like what you were just describing, it almost sounded like prog rock of piano. Where yeah, like, it's, if you can create a cult of personality around what you do, then sky's the limit, you know? And it's something unique for artists, whether you're a musician or a comedian or whatever you're doing. If you're a carpenter and you make a chair that breaks, no amount of marketing is going to make up for the fact that you make a chair that breaks. No one's going to buy it. But if you're an artist and you have something subjective, good or bad, but you're able to make a cult of personality on what you're doing, and the dead were the first. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, they weren't, I mean, the Beatles, obviously, Beatlemania, but like you look at the business model of the dead past the music, which... I wasn't into for a long time, and then I got into later on because of uh, weed. Gig, oh, yeah, sorry. weed too. But, <laughs> but work, you know, it was straight logistics. You get hired as a dead player because there's a million dead cover bands. Yeah. So I eventually got very familiar with their catalog. Yeah. And uh, but uh, they really were able to cultivate that, you know, with fish. The people that are fans of Fish, they call those guys by their first names. You know, you notice that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. Oh, well, that time he, this guy did that. And, like, that personal connection is not an accident. That's cultivated. You know, the dead were the first band to allow people to film their concerts and tape their concerts and then trade their albums. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and they took no money off of it. And they just said, do it. And everyone thought I, they were nuts. I know. I, I did like that. That yeah. I like. Like that, that kind of, uh, 
that was smart. Like that, that was a very that kind of community building. Yeah. That, yeah, that was a very forward thinking move. Yeah. Cause that's like wildfire. Oh, what do you got there? And yeah. Just... Oh, you got that show from 72 where Jerry like got drunk in the third song and missed the no guitar note, you know, like <laughs> yeah. that all of a sudden there's scarcity around that. And there's, and you know, I always said like no amount of skill, talent, or opportunity will ever trump nostalgia. If a band or a something finds you at the right time yes. in your life, it's nothing. It's like I got friends, lots of friends, who are deep into pop punk bands, mm -hmm. and I can't stand this stuff. And a lot of those guys became accomplished musicians who learned all about different kinds of music became jazz heads and like go further into their whatever and they'll still always have a soft spot for that music you know for me i grew up on the blues and there's a lot of really horrible blues music out there that i give a pass to because like oh it's blues you know yeah. I, I feel like if i run into a, if i go into a bar and i see a band and they're playing blues and even if it's shitty blues it's still like oh cool blues yeah you know it's like, still better it's, like shitty blues yeah is still better there's than still yeah there's still a part of me that that feels Jackson that connection Room. yeah and it's not necessarily logical but at the same time like it's an emotional connection and if you're a band you know how to exploit that you know then that's how pop stars are born they yeah. know the formula you know formula for everything yep. you gotta be in the right place not at the wrong time <laughs> <laughs> you're actually getting softer as the show your voice is getting Softer and is it? Yeah. Yeah, I can attest. I've been riding the, I, the levels the entire time. Letting everybody What are your uh for our listeners, what would you say are your your like essential Dr. John performances? Uh I would say definitely the last waltz, you mm -hmm. know, that performance for sure. Uh, I would probably also, again, any of his solo stuff where it's just him at the piano, just playing whatever it is, you know, I, I love the stuff where he's playing with other musicians, but at the end of the day, like those are the most powerful performances that yeah. I saw, like stuff you know, stuff off of some of the jazz festivals that he's done over the years, you know, some of those live performances that he did where, again, like, he's playing to a festival of thousands of people and it's just him on the piano and you're riding that high that he's creating from that. And I think that it's some of the most powerful stuff that he did and some of the most honest stuff that he did. Yeah. Because it, he wasn't... You know, it was you could shut your eyes. It didn't matter that he looked like a crazy person on stage, and that there was all this performance stuff. It was just his approach, the feel that he lent to the music. It, it bled through the piano at that point. Yeah, there is something really personal just about a guy in a piano, right? Or an artist in a piano. Like I, think I, so. I, <laughs> I would have to say so, Cover. No, but just just even like you said, it was just when like I I've seen um I've seen Bruce by himself. Yeah. Where and there's nobody else on stage. And he'll bounce around between instruments. But when he sits down at the piano, I notice I'm always like if I if I could if if I had a if I had like a genie lamp and it was like hey you can 
you can be amazing at one instrument, what would you choose? Piano. Like I would choose piano. Like the idea that you can just sit there all day and and noodle around with that shit. I'm I'm jealous of the that you have musical ability. And you can do it with nine and a half fingers, apparently. Apparently. That's cool. It's, yeah, it's, 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 for me, the instrument, it's just so, it's actually, I learned this recently, that in Europe it was called the pianoforte. That's the full name for that instrument, but they shorten it to piano just because everybody doesn't have time. But like, the, (laughs) the, the point, the point being that like piano and forte in Italian mean loud and soft. So a piano forte was like. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So this is this instrument that can be gigantic. And it can be the size of a pin needle, you yeah. know? And it's because you listen to those classical guys, and that's how they played, you know? The softest softs are like pianissimo all the way soft, and the loudest louds, you know, even without orchestra, a piano can sound gigantic. Huge. Yeah, by yeah. itself. So taking that same kind of classical sensibility and putting it into, you know, jazz performance, you know, when you had guys who like uh, Gershwin. You know, Rhapsody in Blue, uh, that song, uh, solo piano is, it's, you know, that's such a direct bridge between classical and jazz music, is that song specifically. Uh, but it was taking a lot of those classical techniques and combining it with the feel of that jazz music as well, like the melting pot that was New Orleans, just really, that was the kind of really cool stuff that came out of that. Yeah. Um I got a question for you, boss. So I know that he asked you for like your favorite performances, but like let's say, let's say you had a family member, or even if you had kids one day, and they came to you and were like, "Dad, I found this new artist, Dr. John," and you sit and you're like, "You have to listen to this." What do you think are the maybe three songs that you would pass down to someone who wanted to start listening to Dr. John? Uh, Closer Walk With Thee is my personal favorite. Definitely not his most famous, but that's the big one. Right Place, Wrong Time is the hit. Uh, Such a Night is... Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, that's a really cool tune. And, like, the whole song's about him stealing another woman's, another guy's girlfriend. His best friends. Yeah. Yeah. Like, (laughs) it's... Those are the three right off the top of my head, I would say, off the bat for him. Uh, but like he, he was also a huge cover musician. That was a huge part of who yeah, he was. He's got some great covers. Yeah, th- we were talking about, there's a cover of, I um, was, I think it was for the blues brothers two soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, season of the witch. Season of the witch. I think it's better than the original. Yeah. The, that, <laughs> that I love that movie and I, sh- it, the music in that regardless yeah you're literally the first person besides myself that actually enjoys that movie i love that movie i love i I love the original blues brothers but i love blues brothers i think it was great i mean it was ridiculous but so was the first one yeah Yeah. but for me i think the thing that really shines in that movie is the music and i think that was the whole point i love all those song choices and that even furthered my even, love of the, that sound. I'm not sure I ever even saw it too. The, the performance at the end of that movie. With the Louisiana Gator Boys. With the Louisiana Gator Boys. Incredible. And actually, I was in school at Miami and Landis came to speak. I, w- I had to take a film class because it was part of my major as a, I was in film music. So like I had to take 
a certain film class. I, I ended up taking this screenwriting class. I wasn't interested. I wasn't looking to be a screenwriter, but it was cool stuff to know and you know something else. And most of the people in there were also screenwriters. And Landis's son was at Miami at the time, so he came to visit one time and talked to the class. Mm-hmm. And the subject of Blues Brothers 2000 came up specifically. And uh, he, Ackroyd, it was, Ackroyd was the driving force behind that movie. And he, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and he said, because Ackroyd's a giant blues fan. And that was the whole thing. That was one of the reasons why that movie worked as well as it did, because it was coming from a real place. Yeah. Ackroyd had so much reverence for these people and this music and everything. So it was real. I think that that's, yeah. for me, is why that movie resonates with me so yeah. much, is because it is such... A love letter to blues and R&B. It is. That I think that that, even with the the plot issues that are in that movie and people comparing the first to the second, I don't think it's fair. I understand why. But I think that the celebration of the uh, the authentic love that those people have for that music makes that movie so great for me. Yeah. And, and Landis said, because Landis doesn't necessarily, it's not as connected to this as Aykroyd is. And Landis, basically, the, the the film studio keeps coming back to him and says, like, okay, he's going to have a brother, like, a long-lost brother. He's going to be black. It's like, okay. And he goes to Ackroyd. He's like, we need to add a long-lost brother who's black. It's like, all right. It's like, all right. And he's going to have a kid. And this kid, and, like, we need to make it PG-13. He goes to Ackroyd. He's like, all right, we, they're making me do this thing with the kid. And, like, edit after edit after edit and, like, new thing after new thing and, like, cut the R rating and all this kind of Hollywood crap. And Landis goes to Ackroyd and is like, this isn't worth it. They're butchering this movie. This thing's going to be awful. And Ackroyd's response was, we need to make this. It's way too important. It's way more important that we get these guys on film doing their thing than it is that even the quality of the movie. You know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That it's way that he had the foresight to know that when the Louisiana Gator Boys were on stage, like that alone for – a guy like Aykroyd was worth the whole movie. So for context, the Louisiana Gator Boys at the end of Blues Brothers 2 consists of B.B. King, Dr. John, Eric Clapton, all these legendary guitarists and musicians. Billy Preston. Billy Preston. It's incredible. So for Aykroyd to have that foresight, it's amazing because we wouldn't ever see those guys on screen again. Dr. John, I don't even think, made another film appearance after that. Yeah. And it's incredible because I think they also played it live. And the recording that we see in the movie is also the recording on the album. Yeah, and and you know and and Ackroyd had to have known it was not going to be well received, you know, or 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 he knew the issues that were with the plot, he knew what was going on and he did it for the musicians, you know, he did yeah. it out of reverence. It was it was a different thing, you know. It it's it's why that it's it's really a cool story because it really shows just how much he cared about the music that he was willing to put all that other crap aside. Like, no, this is too important. We have all these legends. We have this budget to use, especially gonna, yeah. with the Saturday Night Live band, because you realize how influential and how much they were on stuff and you didn't even realize it. Mm. Like a lot of those players, you were talking about Sesame Street earlier, would also play on Sesame Street session records. That's how um, uh, Le Freak, what's his his name? Nile Rodgers. Nile Rodgers got his start as a session player on Sesame Street. So it's like, it's just the this interesting Mm -hmm. narrative of musical legacy that I think that that's why 
I love Blues Brothers 2000. I know not a lot of people agree with that. So that was... Sorry, I didn't no, jump ha- down that I'm rabbit ha- hole. No, I was no, like, oh, wait. shit. No, it's, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I love that movie. I love... It was it was great and yeah the the respect that they had for each other and you know it was like all those musicians were just as excited to play with each other as yeah. as yeah. we were to watch and that's that's why I love going to festivals like because you know a lot of musicians are on the road all year they don't get a chance to hang out with each other even if they're in the same wheelhouse especially if they're same in the same yeah. wheelhouse so we're all gigging on the same exactly night, same with comics so it had to have been a blast to have everybody in the same room just bullshitting for a day or two that would have been worth the price alone just to get that done you know nice. that's and then it's a lot of those guys aren't there anymore nope they're just not a, you know no, we lost uh, Billy Preston, Doctor John. Yeah, BB. That BB was King. my. He was. He's the only one I'd put ahead of Doctor John as far as biggest influences in my life. Oh, really? Yeah. He's like that with my brother too. Yeah. My brother had a really interesting experience meeting BB King. Me too. And BB uh, gave him a guitar pick. Yeah. He looked at him. My brother has this huge afro, bigger than mine, and he goes, "Do you play?" And my brother's like, what? Do you play? And he's like, yeah. And he's and BB goes, I could tell. Hands him the pick yeah. off the Count Basie stage. That's amazing. And I think that was his last time in Jersey. That's amazing. I he uh, I saw him when I was like 16. And uh, he was playing the Basie. And his bus was parked out back. And I was thinking, hopefully, maybe... I'll wait outside, and maybe I'll get a chance to see him up close, and yeah. maybe I'll get a chance to like whatever. But I really no expectations. I didn't have any connections to anybody at this place. I went there with my dad to see BB King, and that's it. And uh, he invited me onto his bus with like Whoa. yeah. There oh was, wow! There was a few kids. I I mean, it would, I wouldn't have worked as an adult. I'm sure it was because I was a kid. Like he wanted to invite some kids onto the bus, but yeah. like. You know, the, it's funny because Dr. John being my other hero that met and I had that story from, and like, which is funny, but with BB, you could feel the warmth emanating from this guy. You could feel how happy he was to meet you, how humbled he was to still be doing it, how it, it genuine, genuine energy, and yeah. it, it, it was incredibly powerful. And every asshole I've met in music since, no matter how big they are, <laughs> it's like, who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah. B.B. King's a saint, you know? Yeah. And you want to talk about a guy, even as famous as B.B. was, he was way more famous amongst musicians. Yeah. You know? Like, just for the respect. So in, that I, you could put him in the same league as someone like Dr. John, who's just like that kind of influence, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know what I was reading about in this Rolling Stone article that is so Dr. John's final album, they haven't even released it yet. Didn't know that. Yeah. They said that, um, he started to like, um, Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys, uh, produced what was like, you know, one of his many comeback albums. I think uh, it's not that like within the last 10 years, I think like 2012 or 2013 and he made it. It was much more in the vein of uh, Grigri in those first few albums. It was like kind of a return to, to that style of music. And then 
I think that was his final studio album re uh, released, and you know, in his life. But then, in this article I was reading, said that his final album had been completed. And included a Traveling Wilburys cover. Yes. I know. I can't wait uh, to hear this. You heard about this? Yeah, I was yeah. reading. I was reading the same article. Same article. Rolling yeah. Stone. Yes. End of the line. It was. He was him acknowledging that he was at the <coughs> end yeah. of his life. And yeah. and you're gonna like this. They took a uh, Johnny Cash Rick Rubin approach to some of the songs. So it's just Doctor John. That's on great. Quite a few of them. That's great. So that I think. Oh, uh, man, I can't wait for that. Yeah, record. but it, you know what? It's funny because I read it last night. I was like, well, why the fuck isn't this album out? And he's been, and I'm like, oh, he's been dead a year. It actually wasn't that long ago that I, maybe they're still and COVID, waiting. You know, yeah. everything's backed up. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been and fun. talking, Dr. John. What, what do you have coming up? How can people find you? Where, where can they see you? Uh, well, ryangregmusic.com. It's uh, Greg with two Gs. Greg with two Gs. Three, technically, if you count the first one. But, uh, and then... <laughs> <laughs> How many times yep. have you said that in your life? <laughs> so many. <laughs> I love good shit. <laughs> uh, I'm doing a gig with this local legend named Stormin' Norman Selden, November 13th, mm -hmm. uh, at the Wonder Bar. That's my next gig on the books. Uh, but I'll be releasing a lot of new material over the next year or so. So Instagram, Ryan Gregg Music, RyanGreggMusic.com. I'm easy to find, always happy to chat, and uh, yeah. Yeah, baby. Christopher, check them out. I got some fun stuff coming up. Uh, I'll be a, a headline in the Virginia Beach Funny Bone, October 21st, uh, down in Virginia Beach. And then, guess what we're doing in, uh, in November? Yeah. Ken, day before Thanksgiving, a monster of a night. It's always a monster weekend. We'll um, headline in the Stress Factory with you, dude. Yeah. I'm it's excited. Be fun. So the Wednesday Woo! before Thanksgiving, Wednesday twenty fourth, and that is uh, that is first. I think they're both on sale now, so just check them out. Yeah, cool, man. Kahuna, anything you wanna? Uh, nothing to declare at the moment, man. Just things are good right now. Working on my own kids' music, actually. Nice. Freaking, uh, yeah, things are good. So. I don't have any stress factory headlining gigs coming up, but uh, <laughs> oh, so you're available that day. Maybe <laughs> why don't you come by? <laughs> Get your laugh on. You know what? Count me in. I'm there. Uh, nice. If you awesome. need me to film it, I will too. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. All right. Well, uh, hey, follow us on Twitter at Rock and with the and spelled out at Rock and Roll Pod. And um, we will be back in a few days with G Love. I'm really excited. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Ken. Thank Thanks you. for coming on, guys. Thank you.